The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Great multitudes accompanied Jesus, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and take counsel, whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends an embassy and asks terms of peace. So therefore, whoever of you does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So I've written about a thousand introductions to this homily in my mind this week. And it's been a, a wrestling match, to be honest, because I don't really like what Jesus has to say here. And at the same time, I feel a deep responsibility to not do what is so often done with these texts and what I so often do with these kinds of texts, which is to remove the teeth of it by qualifying every little thing that Jesus says until all the difficulty is gone and we're left feeling pretty good about ourselves. I don't want to lessen the rhetorical one-two punch that Jesus is delivering here in our gospel lesson. And so... I just want to say at the outset, if you're visiting with us, uh, we do preach the gospel here, okay? I just I want you to know that. And we believe that it's grace. This is what Jesus is getting at when he talks about you, you're going to come to terms with the king coming against you when you realize there's no way out for you. You make peace. That's what the gospel is about, Christ making our peace on our behalf. But for tonight, I'm probably going to leave us hanging in a bit of an uncomfortable space. So just come back again next week, okay? Hopefully there will be a resolution. I think most of us go through life with these two assumptions. First of all, we assume that our life should be as pain-free and worry-free as possible. We assume that 
pursuing comfort and safety is at some level the goal of life. And second, we assume that we should provide for our children, either real or hoped for, a better life than we had. Right? This evening, as we consider Christ's difficult words to us, I would like to spend some time looking at what's obvious, though we may wish it weren't, before turning to consider something perhaps even more upending than the obvious stuff. First things first. Jesus is not commanding his disciples to act antagonistically toward their family. We need to keep in mind that our current cultural moment that is so obsessed with personal freedom that has wreaked havoc on our familial relationships was not the reality in Jesus' day. The people to whom Jesus was speaking understood that family was incredibly important and family loyalty outmatched nearly any other claim on your attention. We also need to recognize that Jesus upheld and fulfilled all the law perfectly, and that includes the commandment to honor father and mother. Elsewhere in the New Testament, the Apostle St. Paul states explicitly that a man who abandons his family and fails to support them has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Of course, when Jesus says that we need to hate our family, he is speaking hyperbolically, but he is doing so to get us to a crisis point. We cannot just explain him away. And the realization that he is driving us toward is one that we have been talking about off and on around here for a while, and it's the same thing pointed to in our Old Testament lesson. We have one fundamental choice to make in this life, to choose life or death, to choose God or not God. But here, in this gospel lesson this evening, the stakes are higher. The startling nature of Christ's words to us don't just bring us to the fundamental choice of God or not God. They reveal to us something deeper about the nature of reality. To choose God is to give yourself over to him fully, to be consumed by him. There are no half measures. Now, you might be asking yourself, well, how is that remotely good news? It's good news because to choose the other option, not God, is to give yourself fully over to death, and death, too, takes no half measures. You were built to live in God's very life, to be consumed by him not in such a way that you were lost, but so that you become most truly yourself as he has made you. But this union with God, the thing that you were built for, it requires a posture of abandonment of everything you think is important. This is in many ways what baptism is. In going under the water, you are dying. As St. Paul says, the world has been crucified to me and I have been crucified to the world. As I told you a few weeks ago in the words of Abba Mata, Father Matthew the poor, he says, salvation is not easy. Salvation requires a death. But if we are eventually going to die, why not just do it now by our own will, by which he means baptism and the death to self. Let us choose the death that leads to eternal life. This is the real victory. 
Friends, to be a follower of Jesus is to exist as a crucified person. As St. C.S. Lewis so aptly put it, Christ speaks to us thus, give me all of you. I don't want so much of your time, so much of your talents and money, and so much of your work. I want you, all of you. I have not come to torment or frustrate the natural man or woman, but to kill it. No half measures will do. I don't want to only prune a branch here and a branch there. Rather, I want the whole tree out. Hand it over to me, the whole outfit, all of your desires, all of your wants and wishes and dreams. Turn them all over to me. Give yourself to me, and I will make of you a new self in my image. Give me yourself, and in exchange, I will give you myself. My will shall become your will. My heart shall become your heart. This is what Jesus is getting at when he calls us to cancel out all of the other things that may get in the way of choosing him completely and fully. Now, this is the second time in Luke's gospel that Jesus has instructed his hearers that to be with him is to take up a cross and follow him daily. And I want to be very clear with you. The doctrinal minimalism encouraged by evangelical Protestantism has led us to a dangerously impoverished understanding of salvation. Making a commitment to follow Jesus is not a one-time deal. Conversion is stopping in your tracks on your way to the city of death and destruction and turning around. That's conversion. But from there, every day, every moment is a call to cross-bearing. Jesus holds you. Jesus has blazed this trail ahead of you, but do not mistake him for a tag-along in your adventures. Understand that apart from Christ, life in the world is treading water in an endless ocean, and Christ comes to you in a boat the boat of the church, and he will lift you into the boat. He does the work. But like a lifeguard, he can't do it if you keep trying to fight your own way through the water. You must submit your whole will to him and be pulled into the boat and stay in the boat wherever it takes you, whatever storm it faces, whatever the personal cost. So what does it mean for you to take up your cross and follow Jesus? I have a couple of ideas to tick through and then things are going to get a little unsettling. At a certain level, taking up your cross is living a baptized life. That's essentially what it means. It's to live in a fight with every breath you take to uphold your baptismal vows, renouncing Satan and all of his works and clinging to Christ. To take up your cross is to live a life of service in love to others, not from within the typical matrix of tribal love or reciprocation, but a love that is rooted in freedom, a love that expects and demands nothing in return. To take up your cross is to enter into the ascetic practices of the church, 
Fasting, giving alms, kneeling, keeping silence and stillness, prostrating, keeping a rule of prayer, beginning and ending each day with the prayers of the church, presenting yourself and your children, should you have them, as you here have done tonight, presenting yourself before the Lord in the liturgy. These things will not save you, but unless you learn to practice them in this life, you will be entirely unprepared to continue following Christ, bearing your cross when trouble comes. Practicing ascesis, the disciplines of the faith, is a way of tamping down our will. It's like breaking a horse. Breaking a horse is not the point. You don't break a horse so it can run circles around that little track over and over again. You break a horse because it's the only way to get the horse to listen to its rider so that it can go about doing the work that it's meant to do. This is what the ascetic practices of the church are meant to do in us, to get us to start realizing that we can forego things that we desire in the name of something greater, so that when we are called to, when there isn't a choice to be made, other than apostasy or faithfulness, we choose faithfulness. Here's another thing. One of the insidious aspects of modernity is its insistence on a faux complexity. Everything is shaded. Right and wrong have become so unmoored that it feels overwhelming to make a moral choice with any sort of clarity. Now, if you know anything about me, you know that I have rejected the false clarity of fundamentalism that insists on a wooden understanding of everything. And yet, the New Testament and the apostolic witness that the New Testament is built upon are actually quite clear on how baptized people are to behave sexually, what we are to do with our money, how we are to treat outsiders and the destitute, how we are to submit to the bishops of the church, not forsaking the gathering of the baptized in the liturgy of the Mass. These things are not actually all that hard to decipher. Instead, it's like G.K. Chesterton said, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. Here's what's been unsettling to me. It seems that the more time I spend with the klaxon, clarion call of the church fathers and the scriptures and the tradition, the less I understand how to square the call of Christ to take up our crosses and follow him with the apparent requirements of modern life. There's a lot of money in this room, but it's almost all spoken for. If I look at the budget that I have now compared to the budget that I had when I was in grad school and newly married, it's insane. Likewise, there's a lot of time and talent in this room, but it too has been earmarked for other things. How do we exist as a cross-bearing people in this city? Beyond the basics that I've already outlined for you, the answer is, I don't know. That's not the unsettling part or the scary part. There's lots of stuff that I don't know. What's unsettled me this week is the realization that Jesus is not who I've been taught to expect him to be. He is love. 
but he's not always comforting. He is a friend more faithful than any friend I have ever known. But he doesn't humor me to spare my feelings. There is a day coming when I will stand before the fire of his throne and everything I have ever done will pass with me through that fire. And I honestly don't know how much of what I've done in this life will pass through as refined gold. And I am dismayed to think of how much will be burnt as straw. There is another day coming, most likely prior to the day of judgment, when what I really care about, what I really find important will be on display at some level in the lives of my children. What will that reveal? Will it reveal that I honored Christ as king over my whole life? Or have I taught them comfort and selfishness as a way of living? This is what I know. The cruciform way of Jesus is deeply incompatible with modern American life. What I don't know is how violently we should wrest ourselves out of the death spiral of modern American life, but I am not comforted by a savior who has told us to pluck out our eyes and cut off our hands if necessary. A savior who in this very gospel text has told us that we must bid farewell to all of our possessions should we seek to follow him. A savior who asks us, what could the prophet be if we forfeit our souls to gain the world? Against every cell in my body, I'm going to leave that question hanging there. But I'd like to close with a prayer that the Eastern Church says every day. O heavenly King, the Comforter, the Spirit of Truth, you are everywhere filling all things. Treasury of blessing and giver of life, come and abide in us and cleanse us from every impurity and save our souls, O good one. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.